Hello and welcome to the Cyber Sisters podcast. We're your Cyber Sisters, Allison and Emily, two cyber educators talking ed tech pedagogy and this week, digital breakout EDUs with Nikki Alcott. Missy Halcott is a middle school technology integration specialist at West York, an adjunct professor at Wilson and an instructor for Edgespire, currently earning a supervisory certificate at York College. She previously taught grades three, five, and six and serves as a K-5 technology integration specialist. Welcome to the show, Missy. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Always excited to talk about EdTech. It is a big, beautiful world full of all kinds of amazing tools. Um, And I know that I was really inspired when I met you at KTI uh, to actually go to one of your sessions and see these amazing digital breakout rooms that you build um, that are just like absolutely elaborate. It really opened, I think, my eyes to what digital breakouts could look like because I know that I always get jealous when I'm on Twitter or I'm in sort of teacher media and I see these like elaborately dressed classrooms for these really cool breakout experiments. And I always think to myself, oh, I wish I could do that in my cyber environment. Um, And you've really found an amazing way to do that yourself inside of your uh, digital breakout as well. So I'm very, very impressed with the work that you do. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed doing it. And I can say I remember sitting where you were, sitting in a session and watching someone else do it and going, I really wish I could do that. It just seems so impossible. And then I started playing and figured out it's really not that hard. It's a lot of fun, too. Um, so for those of us who are still maybe who didn't get to go to your session, because you are clearly the expert on this, um, or who are still like a little unsure, can you explain exactly what digital breakouts are, how maybe a little bit about how they came about and how, what exactly they kind of look like. Yeah, um, so digital breakouts pretty much came from the idea of an escape room. Have you guys been to an escape room before? Oh, you bet. So it's a lot of fun. You go in a room, you get locked in for a time period, and your job is to break out by solving a lot of clues. So um, why not take that into your classroom and have students break out or into their learning? So digital breakouts basically take the concept of the breakout EDU box, which you can buy online, which is a kit, and you can do it on a device. So from a cell phone or a Chromebook or a laptop, the students can actually use a website and experiment with content until they figure out how to solve various locks that you set up for them. You can also do this through um, Breakout EDU's digital platform. But um, for those of us who are thrifty and like to do things ourselves, um, building your own digital breakout is a completely alternate solution to doing the same thing without paying for a platform. That is incredibly cool. And I just, I love the idea that there is out there um, really, really creative people who are finding ways to make this kind of technology accessible in all different kinds of classrooms. So I would love to hear a little more about how did you like make your first one? Because one of the things that we sort of talk about ourselves in in terms of this podcast is that we think of ourselves very much as learners, right? All teachers are kind of professional learners, um, but we are very much learners who are trying to learn from masters like you. Um, So when you were sort of making your first one, your first couple of ones, um, what were some of the things that you thought about? Because you have things that are like beautiful and very, very elaborate. If you were going to bring this down to something that was accessible for someone trying this for the first time, what would you try? 
I would definitely start with figuring out what content I wanted to expose my kids to first. Am I trying to reteach a concept or have them review it at the end of the chapter? Or am I trying to introduce a topic to them that they've never seen before? Um, so there's two very different approaches. If I'm trying to have them review a concept, then I know my lock should be focused on the big pictures or the big ideas in the unit so that I'm having them review that concept. But if I'm trying to work into introducing a concept, I'm probably going to go more loose with my locks and focus on giving them lots of content up front so they can explore the concepts in the unit that I'm going to be teaching. So I'm giving them that preview that we give to students, sometimes by giving them a picture book or just letting them get some background information on something. By going through the different websites and pages in the breakout, they find the content that they want. And sometimes they learn things that I didn't intend for them to learn. Uh, it's always interesting to see what they take out in the breakout. But the first thing I do is figure out what content I'm using. And then after that, I create my form. So when I do mine, I make it with a Google form so that it's self-checking. And that when the kids put the answer in, it tells them whether they're right or wrong right off the bat. So if my three-digit lock was one, two, three, and they entered four, five, six, it would say, I'm sorry, this is the incorrect response, please. And I usually give them a flippant clue that might direct them somewhere in my breakout to help them. So if it was, if it was connected to the picture of a lion, I might say, um, check out the main, and spell main, M-A-N-E, thing on this page. So that I'm trying to give them some kind of indication of where to look, but I'm not giving them the answer. So I build my locks and I have then clues to build and content to put on my site. Um, if I were just starting out for the first time, I would probably have a two page website. The first page would be my content and my clues and the second page would be my form. So the students can easily go between the two. Um, now that I've gotten better at it, I've started to hide pages and put secret things in there, but that was definitely a process and I wouldn't recommend trying to go for that gusto the first time creating one. It's a little overwhelming. I can definitely see that. So what you're actually doing is you have a, a site of some kind, and I believe if I remember from your, your process, you use Google sites to sort I of do. create a lot of these, correct? Okay. And then you have a Google form with the um, answer verification. So for those of you who don't know, when you put in um, a written answer choice, you can make it so that it has to match whatever answer it is that the, the quiz feature of the Google form will let you use. This is very easy to find um, on YouTube, how to set this up. Um, I'm sure it's something that we can link in the show notes. Um, so you actually use that as the lock and basically you have them go through the clues to get sort of what the letters or what the sequence will be mm -hmm. on the Google form. And that's how they get out. But the actual page is the content. So that could be a reading that could be, um, I guess, like an artifact that someone is analyzing sort of something like that. It could be a wide variety of things. I use Google sites for my content. So I will pull in lots of different tools. I'll use puzzle makers. I'll use cryptograms. I'll use um, Google drawings to make mazes for my directional locks. So the locks could be letters. They could be numbers. They could be directions. It's pretty much um, up to you what you want to set for your locks. 
I usually try to keep my breakouts between five and seven lots for my middle school students. Um, and for elementary, three to five is probably the max that I would do, uh, especially when you're giving them a time limit. I usually try to set 45 minutes on the clock in my classrooms. That gives me time to introduce the concept, teach them how to do a breakout, and then to do the breakout. And then at the end, to give them time to wrap up. And I always give the teachers that I'm working with a wrap-up question or a series of questions they could ask to have them debrief on their teamwork and their problem-solving skills, what they did well, what they think they need to improve upon. I love that. I love that this is not just a way for us to teach um, content and analysis, because I think there's a lot of analysis that goes into this, like the fact that it's, um, it is very open source. It's very open in terms of, yes, you have to look at the content and you have to find the, the clues that are within there and you have to find those materials. Um, but there's a lot of sort of metacognition that goes into that process of thinking about thinking. And there's also a lot of sort of working together. Now, do you typically allow students to work in teams or in groups? Is this more individual? How does that sort of look, or does it vary depending on what you build? It varies on the t upon the teacher's um, desire with the breakout. But for me, I always encourage them to have small groups, no more than three working together. Usually one student who is driving the form and trying out the responses. I also give the students a tracking sheet. So that person keeps track of their guesses and what worked and what didn't work. So in case they don't solve it and they want to go back to it later, they can still take the time during a block later and work on it. Um, but also then the other two are on the same site using a device and raking through all the clues and clicking on the things and exploring and picking each other's brains. So they're all involved in that. I found this. Now what in the world does this tell me? So I found a maze. What clue might this go with? I also tell the students to start with looking at the lock form so that they know what the clues are they have to find because that will help them when they're going through and, oh, I see a maze, that has to be something to do with direction. Or I see a bunch of numbers and the equation. What is that trying to tell me? So I know that those probably go together. So it, it really encourages their critical thinking, but also problem solving skills. Um, that's huge. The communication piece is definitely a big part of surviving a breakout, whether you're breaking in or out of content. I think that Working as a team is almost essential when you're doing these because even when you go to an escape room, you don't go by yourself. You go with a group of people. So you want to have your kids working together, and I encourage it. I always worry when you get over groups of three that there's kids who are sitting back and not interested, not participating. So that's always mm -hmm. the, the other thing is, as a teacher, you're not just sitting back and watching all of this unfold. You have to be constantly walking around the room and monitoring and the biggest thing uh, teachers do wrong with digital breakouts is they want to jump in and help their kids because we're used to doing that. Our job is to help kids learn and be successful. Sometimes we're too quick to pull the trigger on giving that help. So I always um, give students two pennies. So I tell them they have my two cents worth of expertise and they have to budget their money for the 45 minutes. And when they need help, I take the penny from them and I give them a clue and then I walk away again. So I always start out with, are you sure you want to use that clue right now? And then I give them the help that they need or the teacher gives them the help that they need. That is such a brilliant, brilliant strategy. And we're going to have to think about what that can look like 
um, in our cyber environment. I don't know if it's like a picture or something like that, but I, I think that's a really, really clever way to make sure that one, they're not overutilizing that help. Um, and, and it helps with that sort of um, learned helplessness, right? Like it, it teaches them there are resources here that are available for you, but it is the who of you, right? We've created an incentive for you to at least try it on your own before you get there. Absolutely. And in your cyber environment, if you have a shared document, maybe it's just a table with X's and you've used your first hint, you've used your second hint somehow so they can see where they're at and you can track where they're at as well. I also like to keep track for the kids and display who's solved which puzzles. So sometimes that helps them to motivate them. So kind of like when we did the um, breakout games this summer with a John Meehan and we had the balloons and you guys pop them every time you solved one of the games. Um, letting the kids have a visual tracker on the board that says clue one, two, three, four, five, and flipping the card that, to green when they've gotten through that or even just a check mark on the board that says I've gotten these done so they can see visually that they're the third group that's gotten three puzzles done and the times of 20 minutes it kind of motivates them to be more competitive and also to get into the game a little bit more. I'm thinking about I'm thinking through how we can make this make things like that water trickier because if they're all in groups they can't necessarily all see what's happening in the main room. We could do announcements, though. Well, but here's here's what I'm imagining, right? Is that if what we want is something that's a visual space, we could easily create a bunch of breakout rooms. And then what we could do is we could set the breakout room so the students can move themselves. And so when you're unlocking certain clues or you're completing different levels of the escape, you have to have a representative that goes from your breakout room into the main room and put something in there so that they can see, right? The representative can say, oh, there's a team ahead of us or there's a team behind us um, or something like that. I think that would work perfectly well. I like that idea. That's really cool. Right? Use the, use the landscape around you to your advantage. That's the, if I've learned anything in cyber, it is that for the most part, you can use elements of whatever your digital landscape is to your advantage. So for us, you know, it can almost be like you're going back into the game and the fact that you can't see where everyone is. That might actually heighten some of the intensity, heighten some of the competitiveness um, for individual students. Because I know when I'm in a classroom, the students can see each other. So sometimes there's the risk of I'm going to whisper loudly or I'm going to talk over each other and you're going to hear each, you're going to hear me and you're going to get the hint from me. And we talk about, especially when we go from one period to the next period, um, for you to teach in physical classroom spaces, um, sweeten the pot with your classroom. So period one, let them know, like, we're looking for the fastest finisher, and that class gets a reward of some type at the end because you don't want to have the kids whisper down the lane at lunch and then the next class comes in and they're done in five minutes because they have all the answers. So it's really smart to say the class who is the fastest finisher, the group that finished the fastest, they're going to see some kind of reward. Um, sometimes we'll do a bonus point on the next worksheet or something like that just to sweeten the pot. So they do keep it a secret and they like to brag about having the quickest finish time. Yeah, that is definitely something we don't have to deal with them telling each other. <laughs> so that I really like that. So what what are some other like best practices that you have from like the teacher side? Some some tips for us as we go on this adventure. So one of the things I would do is check out some of the tools that people have um, cultivated or accumulated and curated for different breakouts. Um, I have a Symbaloo, which I will share with the resources. 
that gives basically all kinds of different um, breakout tools you can use. Uh, I really like um, some of those tools and I found them and I've collected them over the course of several years. But even things like jigsaw puzzles and putting a clue so when they put the puzzle together they'll see a, a phrase that will give them a hint. Um, it can make it very tactile and not just uh, sit and listen to videos and read online text. It can be very text, um, tactile if you add those clues. Throwing in things like false tweets and false social media posts is high interest to kids, especially at the middle school level where they're big fans of social media. Using those things that they really get excited about. I like some of those tricks. Also, um, you can get fake re receipt generators, fake airplane tickets. You can just about find anything that's a fake generator and lots of different code generators that you can use to build very different looking puzzles and switch it up. Don't use the same puzzles every time you make one because then it gets a little boring for the kids. They want to be challenged as well. So I, I find every time I do a breakout, I throw in a new type of puzzle and throw them off their game a little bit more. I will say it's kind of interesting when you're doing a digital breakout with a class because the kids who do the best are usually your kids who struggle with learning because their classes are normally a struggle for them and they're always trying to figure out new ways to master their learning. Where your kids who usually breeze through school really struggle with this because they have to think outside the box and the answers aren't right there for them. So they get very frustrated and I find that they're the ones who sometimes struggle the most with these. So it's always interesting to watch how that works in your classroom. That's why I like having the pennies. No, I, I think that is the truest, truest thing. I can remember going to college. Um, I, I went to a, a very, very rigorous school um, and that attracted a lot of people who were just sort of very naturally um, had a lot of kinds of intelligence that lended themselves to doing well academically. And there was this thing that everyone used to say was that the first um, time papers got handed back, um, that it was called Red Friday, that all of the sudden students that had never seen red on their paper were going to see red on their paper and it was going to be red on their faces, right? Like, you know, because they were so angry or they were so upset. And I remember being extremely, extremely nervous about Red Friday when we were going to get back our first like papers and assignments and things like that. And I, I did very well, but I credit that to, I was not a naturally gifted reader or a naturally gifted writer. Um, I really struggled a lot in school and developed a certain amount of, of resilience around those things. And I think that so often, especially with our students who are very intelligent, you know, so much of our system really um, rewards them with good grades. And, and, and sometimes we don't differentiate up, I think, as much as we need to or present them with challenges that force them to think a little differently. And I think what's so brilliant about this particular strategy of getting students to do analysis that is outside of literature or outside of mathematics or outside of science, right? Uh, these sort of, you know, puzzles and things and combining different kinds of works together is that it really does force students to think in a difficult and different way than they might have, have done so in the past. So I, I think this is really wonderful. Now I'm looking 
ahead of my calendar and I'm trying to figure out, okay, when is the best day for me to do this event? And I'm, I'm ready. Like I'm there's, I always teach on camera. So I'm sure that there's going to be like costumes. It's going to be like a crazy situation, right? Because I want to recreate that moment of like the kids walking in to the classroom and seeing, you know, all of the beautiful decorations that the teachers have done and, and all that kind of stuff for our digital breakout. Um, as I'm thinking about what days are most appropriate, what kind of disadvantages does using a system like this have? What kind of lessons or days should I like definitely not be thinking about um, as I'm incorporating this into my classroom? There are a lot of really great things about using a digital breakout. And I like the fact that you can do it anywhere at any time. But I would avoid those shortened periods where you know you have something special going on or a schedule break or you um, know it's right before um, a big test. Like I would try to do it on those less stressed days. I love the fun ones on the holidays, but I wouldn't do a breakout that's for content like right before the holiday because you want it to introduce or to sum up something right before you do a project or you lead it into something else. So to get the most bang out of it, you really want them to apply what they've learned during that breakout. So that's something to think about. You always have to have a plan B with digital breakouts because, again, technology is wonderful when it works and sometimes it doesn't work. So that's always something to think about as well. Um, make sure that you test out everything you've put in your breakout with a student computer and a student login. Because sometimes I find that the videos that work for us as adults don't always work for students or that some of the puzzle tools might be blocked for a student account that aren't blocked for teachers. So if you make this great thing, make sure you test it out on a student account. I always find a few students who are willing to try it out, or even my own children, um, a few nights before so I can test out and find any flaws. I also have my lovely librarian's aide who is always willing to play with my breakouts. She's not a big fan of them. She says they challenge her too much and she gets frustrated, but she loves testing them out for me and finding the things she thinks I need to fix. So that's been really helpful as well. It is very time consuming to make one. So it's not something you can throw together the week before. Like it takes time to gather the resources. It takes time to build the form. And then it takes time to test it out and make sure it's working the way you want it to work. So usually I will work with a teacher. We'll talk about what topics we want to cover, what content we want to review or preview. And then I will go back to my office and gather up some resources and then we'll meet again. And we'll talk about how we want, what locks we want to look like. And I'll show some of the things I have available. And then I'll go back and start building. And then we'll meet again and we'll talk about where things are at. The other thing I like to do with my breakouts is I like that instantaneous feedback. I'm one of those students who liked my gold star. So I like to know that I did it well. If I, if I spend 45 minutes working on something, and it's hard, it's challenging, it's very mentally challenging. And when they're done, they're excited to know they've made it. So I always uh, use Autocrat, which is one of the extensions that you can add on to a Google Sheet. So that when they fill out the form, which I always collect their email for, then I can send them out an automatic certificate congratulating them on breaking out. They love to print them, and then I take their pictures with them and make sure, of course, they're allowed to be publicized, but then I like to give them their recognition. And we tweet out all the kids who made it out, and they really enjoy that.
Oh, that is so great. See, we have um, we have a class announcements page, and I'm thinking that that may be the place for, for us, Emily, to share that information, because especially students that have like friends in other classes, they can see who's done what in terms of breaking out and all that kind of stuff. And and we're, we're lucky, right? Because um, I definitely think that I'm going to make Emily test mine like four times. No. <laughs> because she's so detailed. She's so good at finding like those little details and those little things, you know, that, that I'm sure that it will be a great experience experience for for her to her to test mine I hopefully will be detailed enough for her <laughs> to make sure that it's working properly but no I like the idea of putting those names on that in that announcement section well and especially because um email email collection is always sort of a thing that's very tricky for us you, you would imagine in a cyber environment right that um, everybody sort of always has a, a very particular way of doing email um, but it is a little a little tricky sometimes with third-party sites and and all that kind of stuff but I do want to look into auto because I will say I was in one of Missy's sessions at Pete and C and the fact that I got a certificate for Girls Gone Googlier like immediately made me very, very happy. And I did in fact feel like that gold star achiever moment (laughs) as a result of getting it. Like it it was, it was exactly as intended. (laughs) You worked so hard. You had to have your certificate. I I loved it. I felt so wonderful. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. With Autocrat, though, you can, you put in your email, you're you're the one who types in your email address, right? It's not that Forms collects it for you. If you use Google Forms, you can set it up on on the response sheet so that each form, each cell, so if I have email collected, that that will automatically go to the to section, and then I can put my email in the from section, and then I can do my subject, and then I can automatically pull in their name from the name cell of the form. So it's nice because you can control what they put into the form and in response sheet, you can pull those cells out. It's kind of like a mail merge. Actually, Allison, I'm thinking it might work for us because even though we're not a Google school, like we still you can use Google Forms. So I'm thinking that we might be able, because they all should know their email addresses, that they could type their email addresses into the form as like as a spot and then Autocrat could just pull their email address out to email it to them. Yeah, that could that could be a great solution. Yeah, you absolutely could do that. So what are some tools? I know we, we talked a little bit about Autocrat. So what are some of the other tools that you would use um, to actually make this besides a Google site? <laughs> yeah, well, obviously I use Google Sites and Google Forms. I use Autocrat for the certificate, but I also use Google Slides to build... Um, PDFs or hints that the kids can put into it. I love using Google Drawings because I can take a diagram and circle parts. So if the answer is a part of an insect, I can circle the thorax and I can give them a little hint that this, you know, feeling buggy, check out the part circled. You know, those things I love to use Google Drawings for. I also love to use Cami because I can find something online and I can circle things on a PDF. So I circle letters and then at the bottom I can put blanks and I can say unscramble these words to find out the answer to this. So it's kind of cool. There's lots of tools you can use. The other thing is I've provided um, Emily and Allison with the link to Assembloo and it has all of the resources for the puzzles that I've used over the course of several years. So if you look at that link, you'll see that there are just a ton of puzzles out there that you can use. 
whether it's fake ID maker, fake Facebook post, um, sign language translator. I've used lots of snotes, which basically are like puzzles where you move them, position them, and then a message will show. So I have lots of things like that. There's also barcodes and QR code generators. There is never a lack of things you can see. Actually, when I go to different digital breakout sessions now, I'm always looking for a new tool that I don't have and adding it to that symbol. So that has been an awesome development for me as well. So I clicked on this right now, you guys, and it is indeed a wealth of knowledge. Um, would it be okay, Missy, if we included these in our show notes so that uh, some of our listeners could also take a look at the amazing resources that you've collected? Absolutely. Please share. That would be awesome. And I also see that you gave us um, some bitlies to, um, it looks like these are two of your actual puzzles. Do you want to sort of talk us through um, what these are? And we can try to link those as well, just for maybe some of our viewers who are viewers, <laughs> our listeners, right, um, who might be trying to visualize this and struggling a little bit. These are phenomenal. Um, so what can you tell us about the two examples that you've left us with. So the first one I did is through the through an animal's eyes, and you'll see that I always give the kids a backstory. So in this one, um, we have animal fact cards, and they flew away, and you have to get the facts for the animals so that we can have all of our seven missing facts that blew away in the windstorm. Um, the kids then, if you click on this up at the top, you'll see the home page, which is where you're at now, and the second page, the lock form. And the lock form is where the Google form is that the kids can put the answers to the locks in. And when you go down there, you see the picture of the lion. It tells them they have 45 minutes to answer and get their, so their lion's pride. I always try to do a lot of word puns in mine. But you'll see there's different locks. So there's a seven-letter word lock. There's a four-digit lock. There's an eight-letter lock. So there's different varieties. If you click in one of those cells, and I always tell the kids it's a good idea ahead of time to click in and put in fake answer and see what clues pop up. So if you click in the seven-letter word lock and I just start typing a bunch of letters and I click off of it, you'll see it says, sorry, has the parrot gotten your tongue? So it kind of gives them a hint, oh, I want to look for something about the parrot. So when they're on the home page, mm. they're going to be looking for a way to get information. And so if you click on those, any, I always talk to the kids about hyperlinks. Anytime there's a hyperlink and you get near it, what happens to your cursor? It changes into a cell. So if we click on the paw prints, it's going to take us into the site and into the pages I've made. So there's a fox here. There's lots of information. Most of those pictures are hyperlinks. If you click on them, you'll see they lead to things. There's also crepuscular, which is my daughter's favorite word from that breakout. So that leads to videos. And I talk to the kids about red herrings. I will caution you on this. I like, I have a quirky sense of humor. So I do tend to put red herrings on my breakouts on purpose and maybe or maybe not to give the teacher a giggle or by the end of the day, want them to strangle me. Because in this particular one, like I have a video to what does the fox say? I mean, Clearly, you have to have fun with it, and I work with middle school kids. So that's a fun red herring. We talk about the fact that it's not related, but it's a fun fox thing that they can talk to. But their mission is to learn about animals in this breakout. So this is the fox page, and when you click on here, you'll see that it leads to other things, whether they're videos about foxes or mammals, or but eventually it will lead to another page. So when you click on the middle fox, it takes you to a parrot page. And you'll see lots of information about the parrot. So eventually you'll be able to find all of your answers. And the answer to the first lock on the 
parrot was mimicry. So that was your answer. And when they go through here and they learn about the parrot, they'll realize that that is an important trait of a parrot. So that's lots of things about animals. And I set that up with the pictures in that lock form to try to make it a little easier for them because if they look at the picture above it, it will tell them where they need to go. I, I think that this is just absolutely brilliant. Like I feel like I'm clicking through these right now um, and I feel like I'm playing a video game. <laughs> and it's just, it's so cool that like I as a teacher can build this. And you know, if I'm a 12 year old student, a 13 year old student who plays Minecraft all day, like this is something that I would want to do. And it's novel, right? I'm going to remember mimicry so much better if this is how I learned about it. So that was your first one. Um, and then I see that you have a second one here too. So the second one is one I'm working with my ELA teachers for. Um, they have a huge unit on survival, realistic fiction stories about people who survived um, crazy events. So I decided to go with a nonfiction approach to tie those two together. And this one's a little harder because I hid the lock page. You'll see there's no other links at the top, but there is the storyline, which of course the class is going on a field trip to Broadway and aliens have invaded New York because all kids love aliens and zombies. So we're going oh, they to New York and the aliens have overtaken the Big Apple and we need to escape and break into Unit 3. So when you go on to all of the links on the first page, they go to facts about New York, which isn't really helping us break out. But if you see where it says locks and it's underlined, if you click on that, it takes you to the locks page. And you'll see all the locks again. They all have the email address and the first name and last name because I pull all those through Autocrat to my certificate. But then I have my different locks. My 13-letter lock, and it tells them all capital letters. Um, my directional lock, it tells them exactly what the directions look like and tells them with caps. So I try to give as much of that information ahead of time. And you'll see red stars, which tells you that all of the questions are required so that I don't have to worry about them not breaking out. But you can't find any of the answers. So where do you think you would go if you were in this breakout? You'll see the coins at the top. They don't belong there. So go ahead and click on those and it will take you into the actual site. So this one is Tales of Survival, and I broke it into three different types of survival. Animal attacks, mine misadventures, struggles at sea, and mountain malady. So it's kind of interesting to go in and learn real cases that actually happened in real life to real people that were related to their realistic fiction readings. So clever. I mean, like I'm, I'm literally, I, I wish that you could see my face right now or sort of what is happening as I'm like clicking through. Um, and I definitely encourage if you have not opened up our show notes, open up our show notes and click on these because they are fantastic. <laughs> um, but these, these are absolutely interesting. And I think what a great way to encourage a student to read about something or to find a connection between something that they're reading in class and something in real life, sort of those, those natural materials. Because I almost think when we hand a student something that feels uh, like they've intrinsically found it in the wild, like they've gone out and found an article or they've gone out and find something, they read it very differently sometimes than when you're in class with them going through um, sort of line by line, right? They, they bring a different kind of energy to it. And these are really, really interesting article. The neat thing about it is I know from doing the breakouts and I've gone into classrooms, we've done the breakout and then kids have come up to me later and said, well, I found this really cool article about this. 
and that was related to the breakout. And I love hearing that follow up and that subsequent learning that happens as a result of this experience. So they're they're continuing to think about it, and almost and and this is one of the things that I know I've really found to be true in working. Um, with students through some of these new things and trying new things it is is that if you say to them you're a part of this learning experience i need your help in some way they really take that role very seriously so for you to say if you ever come across an article or you ever come across a resource that you think would go well in one of our, our breakout send it to me right secretly right they're always on this little mission of looking for things and looking for connections in the real world I, it, it's so sneaky and the neat thing is our kids have enjoyed this so much that one of the things we do during the day is a bulldog block at the end of the day which is a half hour club period kids actually asked me to do a breakout club so i've been offering digital breakouts which has not been an easy task i love doing it but it takes time so i've really leaned heavily on facebook groups and twitter groups for people who develop their own breakouts to share their resources. So if you're a person who wants to try it out but is tentative because it does take a lot of time and you don't have a coach to work with to break through um, making one, it's always great to go out there and see what's already created and who's willing to share and let you use those things. Try them out with your kids. I also tell kids all the time, like, I don't know. I haven't broken out of this one yet, so we're going to work on it together. And whoever breaks out first, great. If you can tell me how to solve something, then I've learned something today. And if I can show you something, then you've learned something today. So it's all about that communal experience. And that's a great soft way to work your way into a full-blown breakout is just do a series of those puzzles and let the kids break into that mindset where they're critically thinking and looking at something in a different way and trying to solve a riddle or a puzzle, and then eventually lead up to a full breakout. I really like the idea of scaffolding that up because I know I am I'm in the middle of a poetry unit. So this will probably be something that I am sort of layering on top of the poetry unit that we're working on with our students. And for many of them, reading a poem feels like a puzzle, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many of them I talk with um, that really feel like figurative language is a puzzle um, to them and sort of trying to uncover the author's meaning. So I'm actually wondering if maybe we sort of scatter these throughout the unit, little sort of puzzles um, to sort of unlock figurative language or something like that. And then right before the quiz, you know, as a big like, are you ready to take the quiz? Are you ready to rumble? Have this sort of extravaganza, right? Where they can sort of show themselves how far they've come in that process. I love the idea of it never would have occurred to me to sort of break it into like mini puzzles that you do over the course of lessons because I think that's a great way to also familiarize them with what kinds of puzzles they might see. The other thing you could do, Allison, I really like the way you're breaking that down is if you have a form with just one lock on it. So you can use a different page for each thing. So maybe you're talking about onomatopoeia and that page displays a poem with onomatopoeia. And then at the end, you have one lock for that concept on each page that you can do that individually and take your time with it. So at the end of each day, like take it out the door, solve the lock for page one of the, of the Google site. Oh, what a brilliant. See, Missy, this is, this is why you're a coach. That's really, really smart. And I think for them to see the progression of, you know, we're slowly moving towards something, I think would be really fun. And I think that they would enjoy the process of building up to something and seeing themselves get better at a different skill, right? It, it, one of the things that we've talked about um, in the course of many of our gamification conversations is sort of badging. And this is almost like badging, but 
very, very controlled. Like I've undone the lock for onomatopoeia. I've undone the lock for metaphor um, and slowly sort of building them up that way. That's a really interesting way to do it. And I'm sure that it could translate to lots of other different kinds of skill. Like I can really see math teachers using something like this, solving different problems. The nice thing is that you can do it with different contents too. Like all of my breakouts thread math into them. Even though we've done a lot of them in ELA class or social studies class, we always throw a math problem in there somehow. The kids always groan or say, that's not fair, I'm in ELA class. But it's amazing how they're pulling those skills in. So if I watch the video on the Titanic and I learn that they had 45,000 pounds of milk or da da da, and the, the equation is pictures of the different foods and they need to put those numbers in and solve it to get the answer for the number lock. Like how cool that they're watching a video, they're learning content, they're pulling those numbers and then they're applying them to their math knowledge. I think that that would be a lot of fun. And I think that, you know, I, I sometimes feel bad for the math teachers. I know that we have some that listen um, and Emily and I tend to be like very reading and writing heavy because that's sort of our passion. Um, but I, I think that something like this and something that's very skill-based is going to make a lot of sense here because you can take a skill into many different kinds of environments and have it translate and have that experience feel really novel and really special to a student. I've really enjoyed the math classrooms I've done breakouts in on problem solving skills. We've done a whole breakout on just how to attack a math problem and then at the end their form was a problem that they had to solve. So that's been really neat to watch the kids work on those. Just brings a little bit of gamification into the math class. I mean, I've, I never complain about gamification and, and certainly not about metacognition, right? Like if, if we're here to learn anything in school, it is it is how to learn. It is how to think. It is how to tackle those problems. This this is excellent, like super excellent. It's funny that we teach kids in siloed subjects, but in real life, there's no silo. You're not going to go, I'm going to stop here and do a math problem. And then I'm going to stop here and I'm going to read the sign to go down the road in my car. I'm going to do the geometry on the angle. No, you're going to do all of that simultaneously. So it is really important to make sure we're threading the fact that learning doesn't stop and it's not a subject area. Ooh, I love that. Emily, that may need to be the quote of the episode is that learning is not a subject area because that that's some powerful stuff. Well, I feel like that may be a good moment to transition um, to the question that we ask every single person uh, that we interview which is what are some things, you know, sort of speaking of learning that you wish you knew before you got started? Um, and I think this question, uh, typically when we first started, it really was about whatever subject it is that our coach is coaching us on. Um, so we are very interested in what you wish you knew before you got started with breakout ADUs. Um, but many people also answer in terms of what they wish they knew before they started teaching. We do have a lot of um, a younger listening audience who are very new teachers or teachers who are in school. Um, so if you have any advice to give to them on either of those fronts, I'm sure that it would be well appreciated. I'm going to start off with something that goes back to being a teacher and remembering my first few years. It is not possible to do all the things and do all the things well. It is really important that you start out small and start out with a pocket of tools and then add to your toolbox as you go. It's okay to say, I can't do this yet, but it's not okay to say I'm not going to ever do it. So, so it's really important to be okay with making mistakes and failing forward. I always make mistakes when I'm doing a digital breakout. And even as a coach, I make mistakes. It's important to own them and to move on from them and to grow. You have to be a lifelong learner as an educator as well. 
So when I make a mistake going to digital breakout, or I do it with the students and they didn't get the certificate because the autocrat wasn't sent out right, I use it as a teachable moment. I say, we're all going to make mistakes and we're going to fix it together. And I go back in and show them how I fix it. And then we move on from there. And then each period gets a little bit better and a little easier. And every time I do a breakout, it's a different experience for me and for the learners. So I embrace the fact that no breakout formula is going to work for every breakout. And that I have to be comfortable living in that state of differences and trying new things every time. It's also really important to ask people if you don't know how to do something. And I often find myself in a situation like I really like the way that digital breakout did this. I don't know how to do that. I'm going to go find the person who did it and ask them. That I think is quality advice for sort of any level of teaching. I think that sometimes we get so in our own lane as teachers. And one of the things that has surprised and delighted me, I think about the last few years as Emily and I have been collaborating more with educators, I think outside of, of our school, is just how open and willing people are to share resources. I know that I was always guilty of feeling like, oh, if they're doing something really cool, they probably don't want to share it with me. Like, oh, that's their thing. Um, you know, and, and they're not going to want to take me through that process. And for the most part, I have never had that experience with an educator, right? Everyone is so open and excited to have you try something too that they have found has made a difference. Yeah, team teamwork makes the dream work. I mean, teachers are here. We're here to help people grow. So why not help one another grow? That That is excellent and that is perfect. Are there any other thoughts that you have uh, for us as we embark on our very first um, breakout EDUs? Any last minute pieces of advice for us? Have fun. Expect um, it to take some time reach out if you need help and really go out and explore what's already out there and play a few games yourself so you can find things you like and find things you don't like and pull them all together don't be afraid to look at what someone else has done and say you know i like this kind of puzzle and i like that kind of puzzle but i really didn't like the way that one worked or you know i love missy but i really don't feel like i need the snarky what does the fox say video in mind my kids are going to lose their mind you know, you need to find out what works for you. And the best piece of advice I can give someone is to make it your own because then you will learn to love being in that gamified learning experience. So I would say that is a perfect note to end on. If you would like to ask Missy for a little bit of help um, or just a little bit of general inspiration because uh, she has lots of amazing content out there for us to learn from, um, you can find her on Twitter at at Halcott MS Tech. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Cyber Sisters podcast. Our next episode will be out Tuesday, April 21st. And you can keep in touch with us on our socials on Twitter at Allison K Teaches and at Sattler Cyber. Please like, comment, and subscribe. We appreciate keeping the conversation going. Keep trying hard, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good one. Bye.